and their working practice is to not tell the perpetrator, because I've met you, the perpetrator, to not tell the perpetrator the evidence. So I was processed in secret in their, uh, with the office of the women's aid being in the police station in, uh, in, in Brent, which of course gives a great legitimacy. And then there was what's called a MARIC process, multiple MARIC conference, sorry, multiple agency risk assessment conference, where you have the, the various local experts, uh, doctor, um, couple of nurses, midwife, police liaison officer, etc. But you see, they only are there to tick the box as having attended, because neither they nor I see, have seen the evidence. All that we will see is the verdict on the evidence, which is that I'm a danger to the children and the mother. An evidence totally unseen and deemed perpetrator automatically because of gender. For example, even as late as last year, Brent Council has repeatedly refused to release the evidence they have about me. Now, I acquired it through court order, and I also acquired a copy through the back door many years ago. We're not going to how I got that. But officially, they have repeatedly refused to give me the evidence, whether it be FOI, Freedom of Information, or um, subject access request. Hi, I'm Naomi Murphy, and this is the Locked Up Living podcast, where we talk with a wide range of people about harsh aspects of institutional life. We also explore some of the ways to overcome them and to grow and develop. I'm David Jones. So join us every Wednesday morning, six o'clock UK time, for a fresh podcast. So today's guest is Vincent McGovern, who has five ombudsman investigations to his credit. An avid motorcyclist who spent nine years racing and 13 years as a motorbike courier, Vincent McGovern also spent nine years as a house husband, raising his three children. He accrued extensive knowledge of the systematic failings of the family court and joins us today to talk about some of the challenges of taking on the system. Welcome, Vincent. Glad to have you on. Thank you very much, Naomi and David. A privilege to be here. Hi, Vincent. Very good to meet with you. Thanks and for you, coming David. along. Thank you, indeed. Good. So, Vincent, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to find yourself in a situation where you were witnessing institutional malpractice? Well, I spent all my life having a zero involvement with any of these agencies. The closest I ever came to court proceedings was occasionally being in court for speeding and learning how to survive in that environment and try to not get banned. So my knowledge of systems was virtually sub-zero. All I knew about divorce was how to spell it, and that's bad news, because none of my friends or family had been divorced. I had never had a mobile phone until 2007. I never had been on a computer. I was possibly the most ignorant person ever brought into this business. But... I have a background as a mechanic all my life, part-time, of course, and I grew up in a small garage in Northwest Ireland on the border, where, shall we say, civic authority and the perception of it was not always very positive. So you are used to, how to say, there's an official system and there's an actual system, and you have to survive between the two of them. I often find this with decent Europeans as well, I might add, at the meetings. And... Um, I was a house husband for nine years, looking after one, two, and three children, uh, looking after the couple of properties we had, been very busy. The mother was a high-flying professional who was accelerating up her ranks. 
and things weren't perfect, but the word divorce separation had never occurred, had never been exchanged until all of a sudden it was decided to remove me from the family home and looking after the children. I refused to go. I realized I was dealing possibly with mental health issues here, later corroborated, but that's a separate matter. And when I refused to go, uh, the mother brought in the local agencies, domestic violence agency, Women's Aid in Brent, where in constitution and practice to only help female survivors of domestic abuse. And their working practice is to not tell the perpetrator because I'm matter you the perpetrator, to not tell the perpetrator the evidence. So I was processed in secret in there uh, with the office of the women's aid being in the police station in, uh, in, in Brent, which of course gives a great legitimacy. And then there was what's called a MARIC process, multiple MARIC conference, sorry, multiple agency risk assessment conference, where you have the, the various local experts, uh, doctor, a um, couple of nurses, midwife, police liaison officer, etc. But you see, they only are there to tick the box as having attended because neither they nor I see, have seen the evidence. All that we will see is the verdict on the evidence, which is that I'm a danger to the children and the mother. An evidence totally unseen and deemed perpetrator automatically because of gender. So is that still the case now, Vincent? To the best of my knowledge, yes, but I cannot get any verification from it. For example, even as late as last year, Brent Council has repeatedly refused to release the evidence they have about me. Now, I acquired it through court order, and I also acquired a copy through the back door many years ago. We're not going to how I got that. But officially, they have repeatedly refused to give me the evidence, whether it be FOI, Freedom of Information, or um, subject access request. Uh, basically, because I have a parliamentary ombudsman investigation into Brent, as well as a local government one, I know they routinely ignore legal advice when it doesn't suit them. And that is the same situation here. The law that's written and the law that's applied are at times opposites. So that was my introduction to this process, and it was an extraordinary avalanche, deep shock, but because I was so shocked, I actually did nothing for a couple of months, which is possibly, in hindsight, the best thing possible because I was in such shock. And I had great support, fantastic support from family and friends, which is absolutely pivotal. For the fathers who don't have that support, you're going to be discarded, kicked out, and you have no chance. Particularly as Kafka's Children and Family Court Advice Support Service vehemently support, I use the word vehemently accurate here, support BDVAP, that's Brent Domestic Violence Advocacy Project and Women's Aid. And by challenging the allegations, you are deemed to be in denial. This is the absurd uh, Kafka situation you would find yourself in as a father. That by challenging the false accusations, leave aside the wild exaggerations and all the rest, but by challenging the false accusations, you're causing the mother stress. And if she is now as the primary carer, and you've been booted from the family home with this verdict and the evidence you've never seen, uh, you are automatically enemy number one, two, and three. You're the ogre of all time. And any trauma the children are suffering from, you're automatically going to be blamed for it. When it's very obvious that the trauma the children are suffering is because they're separated from the primary care for over nine years, 
And of course, that will manifest itself in behavioral problems and all the rest. What a surprise. But you will be automatically accused of having the cause of that trauma because while you were in the family home, this was suppressed because of your psychotic overbearing personality. I mean, there's no word they will not use. There's no description they will not use against you. So I realized quite quickly I was in an absolutely absurd and sick situation. But my naivety was in believing that when I brought this attention to the regulatory authorities, that this would be investigated and corrected. <laughs> I mean, my ignorance is absolutely profound in believing the regulatory authorities are there to protect society. They're not, as, as I have found. They are there to protect the system from society. It's the opposite of what it's meant to be. And what I quickly discovered was that everyone I was dealing with has a university education. You may have obviously guessed that I haven't or anything like it. So this used to cause me great confusion in the beginning. The, the, this management jargon and wonderful large words and sentences and principles. Until I sat down and studied it and realized it's a pile of dog poo. It's just basically copy and paste as I got to know later on. But this is what blows so many fathers in this situation out of the process because they haven't got the, whatever intellect they had before this process. The trauma means that intellect is greatly reduced. I would say it took me 10 months for my for passive intellect to get back to normal. And that's only with the help of a very good McKenzie friend and a three day final fact and a very good judge, I might add, who saw through the nonsense and just tore Kafka's to shreds. Once I caught them out lying as a litigant in person because I couldn't afford representation. But when the average father finds himself against this police address, because it's all on the community safety unit, police station and that, and that you are being deemed a total threat and danger to your children, injunctions against you. If you wave at the children, you are breach of the injunction. If you send them a Christmas card, a birthday card, you're in breach of the injunction based on evidence you've never seen. And the constitutional practice is that you're not meant to see it. It is a beyond cover. I, I, well, did you did you find out what the what the evidence? Well, I oh, I took a court you. order and three hearings yeah. later to find that out, mm -hmm. and that is an exercise in absolute lunacy. Uh, one, the principal reason why I was treated so harshly was because I of the uh, evidence. They never call it allegation; they call it evidence that um, I had repeatedly kicked uh, the family dog in front of the mother and the children, and then I apparently killed it, which caused them all great trauma. And this, you see, sets up uh, a much higher risk factor. I was also accused of being so powerful that I could swing the mother above my head with one hand. I mean, you know, you need to be an Olympian weightlifter to lift a 10 or 11 stone woman above your head. But nothing was not disbelieved. You will ask leading questions. So, for example, the phantom dog, I call him Shadow, he came in because she was told, I've got it all afterwards in court order, she was told that she didn't have enough evidence to get an injunction against me automatically. So the next question was, has you ever been known to abuse animals? Suddenly Shadow comes howling to the rescue. And this is the process. And it's extraordinarily successful at removing fathers by an art. Did, did you not have... Sorry. Sorry. No. Well, I mean, David, go ahead. Uh, did you not have a dog at all? We never had a dog. I have 19 witness statements in court that we never had a dog of any sort. Oh, extraordinary. So, it's not extraordinary. It's common practice, common malpractice. Yeah, yes. That's the problem. The, the, the more common uh, accusation is that the father, when baiting the girl, the daughter, 
uh, would have accidentally would have touched her inappropriately. That's a very common accus accusation. I wasn't accused of that, surprisingly. But that when there's no dog around, there is this, he inappropriately touched the girl, you see. And of course, that's the way it sets up all the red flags. So look, you've, you've, you've mentioned Kafka several times, yeah. and you've also mentioned Kafka, and it does sound like something out of 1984. Uh, and so I momentarily became confused. Can you just clarify for me what CAFCAS is? CAFCAS stands for Children and Family Court Advisory Support Authority. Uh, yeah. And they have a Court Advisory Support Service, I beg your pardon. And I used to know the High Court judge responsible for that one of the S's, support. And if you heard that man's denunciation of what CAFCAS has become, it is a joy to behold. I hope he's still alive. They are the eyes and ears of the court. They were former court welfare officers, prison staff. And their training, they followed the Duluth model. That's Duluth, Minnesota, D-U-L-U-T-H, which is that the patriarchal wheel, men are violent and that women are forever being victims. It's straightforward, grotesque bigotry. And uh, I assumed, I mean, once again, stupidity protects me. I don't know. I assumed when I met the Guardian, because the court rightly deemed that the accusations were so severe in my case, there should be a Guardian at Lightham appointed, that we would be getting to impartial professionalism, real ability. Well, I was unquestioning the most horrible experience of my life, meeting the Kafka's Guardian and her colleague, because straight away, all they wanted to do was put me on a course lasting eight months, costing £2,150 because of my violent behaviour. And when I questioned, eventually questioned, why do I insist on this course? The response is beautiful. They said, the professionals in Brent have deemed you to be violent. So that is Kafka's, I'm afraid, far too often. I've known excellent Kafka's officers, most of them retired, I might add. But they're in a system that is basically legitimizes backdoor social engineering. I've had two parliamentary homicide investigations into Kafka's, in my own case. And I deeply believe that they're a major part of the trauma and the suffering for children in the family court process since it set up on April 1st, April Fool's Day, 2001. Uh, Theresa May as home, Shadow Home Secretary, I believe in 2005 at the Conservative Party conference, brilliantly denounced their failings. Nothing has been done about it since. And one of the advisors to Kafka's currently is, I better not say her name because I know that people would love to sue me, but one of her, how would I say, methods of finding research is on a video explaining how to create research. This is on the Kafka's advisory board. <laughs> Where do you go? If you haven't got it, you fantasize about it, then you create it, then it's fact. Yeah, extraordinary. So during the course of all this, you, you generated five ombudsman investigations correct which, three of them were parliamentary yeah that sounds like a lot to it me. is a hell of a lot and the energy the the, the 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 how would i say the stress and the pressure you have to go under to get that because at all stages you see you have to think two stages ahead you realize you're dealing with people who i quickly realized there's only one rule that applies here the system protects the system. That's rule number one. Rule number two is the system will attack anyone who attacks it. Right? As they perceive, 
your dear Sarah. And um, uh, my first complaints were so laughably inept. It was almost sad. But I quickly realized what I'm up against. As far as I'm concerned, I was up against people exercising criminal behavior. So you have to deal with that mindset. And I knew that there would be a hierarchy above them. So the question was to get through the foot soldiers, shall we call it, who, being arrogant, shall we say, I found weren't possessed of great intellect. And you could get information from them that you would turn some of it to use in your advantage. Trap and whack is the philosophy I applied, if you want to have the, <laughs> the concise term, perhaps. And then they will, in my case, twice, there was a consultant hired to deal with me. Brent hired a consultant. I got that on the Freedom of Information. And Kafka's brought me to a consultant as well. I mean, it's quite flattering to have a consultant dealing with you. And they are far superior intellect, far superior, very difficult to deal with. But you realize, you see, it's like a, it's like a third of a car in a showroom. It's still just a crappy car. And I also discovered that these people, to far too great an extent, have no concept of honesty, integrity, or lying. It is whatever suits the situation they are in. It is it's like trying to lift up water with your fingers, with your fingers opened. You know, no matter how deep you put your hand in under, you lift it up, you have no water when you get to the surface. And this was an awful shock for me because not the parliamentary ombudsman, they are very high level. And they don't use management jargon, and they do not go into nonsensical phrases or anything else. I really, really rate the parliamentary ombudsman's officers, because you're dealing with true professionals. But you see, they're severely curtailed in what they can investigate. For example, Brent and Women's Aid collusion and how they dealt with me. Nobody will investigate that to this day. And I brought this to the attention of everyone. So that system still continues, is my knowledge, because the women's aid are still the preferred service provider for domestic violence in Brent. Brent still has a very aggressive anti-man and child uh, domestic violence policy. So I see no reason to believe there's been any change. Kafka has eventually, a few months ago, got rid of their domestic violence perpetrator program, which they tried to get me on, but the circuit judge threw it out. And the most recent figure I have is that they have spent 1.05 million on 24 cases of public money, I might add. And uh, Ellen Pence, who was one of the founders of the Duluth program, later on totally dismissed and distanced herself from it because, as she said, we were trying to get the evidence to fit our preconceived beliefs. Uh, they, they come up with the whole patriarchy wheel and what have you. And then when they went through it in depth, she realized that she was completely wrong. So great credit to her for, but of course, she was then the outsider denounced. And you had the dilute model until a few months ago with Kafka's. And to my knowledge, they've not replaced it with anything. And I know several fathers who've gone on this program without any findings being made against them, without ever being interviewed by the police or anything else, but they were told as they went on it, it would calm the mother and that it would have good contact with their children. Of course, by going on the program, you see, they've admitted the guilt of the allegations against them. So why why do you think why do you think the this attitude exists? Because I suppose, you know, 
there, pro there probably are some people who do misuse the the system in order to bully of partners course. and yes. I, and so I'm wondering do you think that people who work for these organizations are so frightened of erring in that direction that they they then therefore just treat all men I would say on question that does apply I emphasize there is no question but that uh, there is abuse of the process by uh, malevolent fathers and I would also absolutely insist that there are false denials regards domestic abuse. But the central problem is that the accusations of domestic abuse are heavily government funded in one direction only. And that is the mindset and nobody must go against it in the system. So Kafka's domestic violence perpetrator programs, this is a government organization are for male perpetrators only. Yet more children are killed by the mothers than by the fathers. Uh, Women's Aid campaigned strongly a number of years ago uh, called 19 Child Homicides, that uh, 19 children have been killed over 10 years on contact with the father. When it was investigated, it was discovered that in that same time, 332 children have been killed, slight majority by the mothers, and some children had been killed in a Women's Aid refuge because the mother wanted to harm the children. So you have a combination of, as a, a member of the European Parliament told me in, the, in Brussels in 2014, when I got there the second time, you have a toxic, a quote, you have toxic 1970s feminist mindset. And I can't understand on the continent why Britain has not moved forward from that toxic mindset into what I would call gender neutral professionalism that if you have the ability, the best of luck to you, and if you haven't got the ability, that's reality, to do any job. And uh, the, the most telling comment I came across was from an MEP who since sadly died, Margarita, Austrian MEP, when she said, after reading my uh, deposition, it is obvious that in the UK, the welfare of the child means the welfare of the professional at the expense of the child. And nobody has ever described it better than that. So you see, nobody in the system will go against the system because you're quickly on gardening leave. In my book, I talk about a social worker in Haringey called Nevres Kamal, who tried to expose the systemic malpractice in her own area. She had four children. Suddenly she found her children and herself being investigated for inadequate parenting. What mother, and there's 83% of the people in these services are female, what mother's gonna go up against that wall? Nobody. In the story for your, not just your career. Why are you as a mother if your children are taken off you? Because I've often dealt with these mothers. I'm chair of Central London Branch of Families and Fathers, used to be North London as well. And occasionally we get mothers coming to the meetings whose children have been taken into care. And of course, at times it is legitimate that it is done. But you had the worst situation in the UK for taking children into care with the highest amount, uh, with basically copy and paste decisions as a learned high court judge explained in a ruling some number of years ago, 2014 actually. So you have this system that the system knows the whole story. You, the individual, are a pawn in our system. If you don't do what you are told, either as the perpetrator, if you're male, as the victim, if you're female, this is it's a very binary black and white mindset. And I would also say that Possibly the worst prejudiced people in Kafka's and social services are the males, because they got massive amounts of white knight, I'm going to help all women. 
it, it, it's, it's such a delusion because it infantilizes women almost. And of course, what sickens me really is that I guarantee you there's vulnerable women needing help at this moment in society who cannot access it because they're in too far down the list behind all the ones who are gaming the system. So the system is getting massive funding to help vulnerable women who far too often is helping the ones who just want to gain advantage in the family courts and oust the fathers from being involved with the children's lives because they don't want to share that children's affection. This is the bottom problem here. Those type of mothers who indulge in so much parental alienation, and a small percentage of men do it as well, but the, it's primarily mothers, 95%, they have psychological issues themselves. And when they have children, they suddenly have a weapon that they can then weaponize, politicize, and the vast government-funded system operating in secret, like the domestic violence agencies, the gateway agencies to the court, that support this. And this is the real problem. You will always have extremists in society, but you must never have a situation where the extremists effectively are government policy without accountability or regulation. This is the central problem here. You've given a brilliant description, really, being caught up in a system which is kind of already made up his, That's right. its mind yeah. and, uh, and having real difficulty in finding a way through it. But do you think sexism, well, the other thing, that it's lost in your description is the capacity for thoughtfulness about oh, there's the, zero, zero mm. thoughtfulness. So do you think sexism or anti-immigrant prejudice played any part in how you were treated? Well, the anti-immigrant prejudice didn't so much play a part with me in the courts. It played no part in the courts. Uh, the sexism is endemic in the gateway services and the gateway determines the outcome for so many. Now, in my case, fortunately, I managed to turn the horrific abuse of myself and the children by the gateway agencies to my advantage in the court, aided by good judges, I might add, who saw through this nonsense and uh, uh, helped me because I had been a victim and the children more so had been a victim of this grotesque process. But sexism is institutional in this process. Now, having said that, in public family law, that's the forced adoptions. Uh, immigrant women were the ones suffering most highly from, uh, from, from adoptions, particularly uh, Eastern European women, because, of course, they had the blonde, blue-eyed children that are wanted by the adoption policies. It's such a case that there was a horrific case a number of years ago, around 2013, when an Italian woman who had a bit of a history of psychological problems, but not terribly severe, is my understanding from reading about it, she was taken basically prisoner by social services of a plane at Stansted, uh, forced to give birth, and the child was then handed into social services for adoption. And I used to be on the all-party parliamentary group for children. And I, I gave up after a while because I just was sick of what I was witnessing there. That's what the real problem lies, I might add, the real sexism. And they looked upon these type of women. They were justified as being, we are doing it for their good. This is all, there's always a justification with this process. Mm. Uh, it reminded me of the lunacy during the Inquisition, when for started off as an inquiry into theological value, became a process of burning Protestants at the stake. The justification being that the soul would ascend into heaven in a state of grace if you burned them at the stake. I mean, this is absolute lunacy. So sexism is endemic in private family law. Uh, the vast majority of the time, particularly by women's aid agencies, domestic violence agencies, the local authorities and the like. 
anti-immigration is a factor, but it's harder to prove. Because if you are, um, if you're an Asian man, a Muslim man, or a black man, you are further disadvantaged. And because most of them that come to they meet at the meetings are working class, quite often English is not their first language, they haven't a chance. Because they're being hit with honor-based violence and all the rest, even though they might have never even heard of it effectively. And if you're a large black man in this process, you're immediately deemed to be, you know, the huge big monster. So it, the worst perverse forms of bigotry at times are in place. But you see, the sad thing is, it's all as disguised with the wealth of the child is paramount. It's this perverse language. If you have been told because you're a man and you're fairly large physically, okay, we're against you because you're a man and you're a large physical person and you're a threat. Okay, you can deal with that. But it's not, it's not presented that way. And this is the thing that's impossible for people to fight, of course. It's this highly subtle bigotry, mm. sexism. Thanks, thanks very much. I mean, I suppose going on from that, because one of the revelations you discussed in your book was the realizations that institutions don't act with honesty and integrity. And somehow we kind of think, or at the very least hope that they do. So do you think those assumptions that institutions will follow their own policies and do right, do you think that actually hampers justice? That is the major plank that hampers justice. From what I have come across myself and others. Uh, for example, people of infinitely more success than I am in campaigning against injustice would be Anne Williams, the Hillsborough, the, the Liverpool mother who caused the Hillsborough investigation to finally come to a proper conclusion rather than the immediate cover-up. That would be the best example that I know of. Uh, another of the system protecting the system. Uh, another example would be um, Andrew Jennings, the old Scottish reporter who brought down FIFA and the International Olympic Committee for its uh, <laughs> extraordinary ben benefit system for the members, shall we say, put it politely. And you see, the real disaster of the family court process is that the agencies operate in secret. So you cannot uh, go open about them. I have always walked the tightrope of knowing they would love to get me injunctioned and imprisoned. I know a Mackenzie friend, a lady Mackenzie friend, who at the age of 74 was sentenced to nine years in prison. And when you're sentenced for contempt of court, you don't get one second off. She served the full time. Now she was, she went OTT, let's put that, put them politely. She completely lost her rationale. And I begged her to withdraw from a case she was involved in that made international headlines. She didn't, and that's the price you pay. So I know that um, the vast majority of fathers and, the she, and grandparents as well, grannies and the like, who want to rail against system, quickly comes up against a regulatory system that shuts them down. And you see, once the average person is threatened with uh, injunctions and the like, they then realize quickly that that's going to be on their record, its career affected you know, and all the rest. Well, I've been self-employed most of my life, yeah, particularly since I stopped being a primary care of children. So I don't have a conventional career. So I'm protected there. But I've known of teachers and, and prison officers uh, and police who had a bit of ability to process this. Uh, and this was the threat they got, the, the subtle threat. So they backed off because of where are you going if you've lost your career? that you've been working towards for years. But you see, I'm free of that. 
the advantage of being poor and in a, the grey economy, shall we call it. But how many people are in the grey economy? With a good command of English, if I may say that about myself, good support system, and a deep belief that this system is so crooked, it shouldn't exist, it needs to be replaced badly. And I cannot ever get over the vast difference between the continent uh, the EU nations, the Scandinavian nations for the outcomes for children post-abortion separation and the UK. The contrast is absolutely sickening. So if I have any mission in life, I'm now nearly 64, it is to remove the institutional malpractice. And perversely, I find myself quite enjoying doing it. As you're talking, Vincent, it reminded me of conversations we've had with other people who've taken on corruption in systems and mm. that sense of um, malicious allegations perhaps being made against you, processes not being followed. And yeah. I remember um, a psychiatrist once said to me, I don't know why you believe in the integrity of the institution, but there is something, I think, in society generally where we expect institutions, if they've got policies, that they're to follow those policies and that they will protect us. And it's, it's I think, that belief that if you do what, if you follow the policy that somehow things will work out right is exactly the downfall, as you say. Well, I particularly find that among what I call the decent Englishmen in society. I mean, I'm not an Englishman, I'm not boasting about it, it's just reality. The average ordinary English person who comes to the meetings absolutely believes in systems and society because they have fought wars in their history against Nazism, against all the rest. And they're very proud of the role of England in society and worldwide that is a bastion of democracy and all the rest. And they are the ones most easily beaten when it comes to this, because they have no comprehension that this is the actual system that exists. Now, the ones who exist better in this environment are the Eastern Europeans, the older Eastern European men, because they grew up behind the Iron Curtain. They know only too well the actual system and the official system, and that it's unrelated quite often, you see. So they are smart enough to survive. The other people who survived quite well in the family court environment against false allegations and the like are small business people, who, small tradesmen and the like, who realise that you have to cut corners to get around systems and all the rest, and they don't have much belief in systems in the first place. The most difficult people to help are the intellectuals and the, the teachers, university teachers and all the rest. You cannot help them, because they are embedded in believing that the system is right. And that it has uniquely decided to jump on them because of some personal failing within themselves, presentation or whatever. So they're going over. And the real disaster there is they endlessly analyze because they don't understand the basic prejudice in the first place and the desire of the systems to protect systems. And I, in my ignorance, I believe that computerization and management jargon has a major part to play here in creating this wall against corrective behavior when malpractice is brought to the attention. And, and protocols, of course, and all the rest. Nobody will make a decision. And that's what defeats the average person from trying to bring about improvement. And what, what happens when concerns are raised with regulators? <laughs> uh, how much comedy do you want to exercise? It's the bottom line. Uh, as I've established in my book, quite often the regulators, well, I'll give you an example. Lord Laming in 2001 did a massive investigation into child children's services in Brent and Haringey, which he found to be truly appalling. And I read about this in 2010. 
in the middle of my own case, I might add. And I could only walk around the local fields kicking a tree until I realized that particularly in Brent, who are the regulator here, that they brought lion into disrepute. That's the expression that came to my mind. Now, one of his recommendations was that the investigator should not be the investigator. This comes back to your question about regulator. And he realized, Lord Lamy, that far too often the investigator was the regulator. They became the regulator. They became the investigator of the complaint against them. And that's exactly what happened to me. So he had 100 and I think 109 recommendations. And years later, when we had um, baby P, Peter Connolly in Harrogate, very similar to a previous situation, he was brought in. He was asked to have a look at it, a review. And he said, none of my recommendations were followed. So here was a major investigation with three acts of parliament, 3.8 million or something. Uh, took weeks to sit. He was repeatedly lied to, as he said, by the NSPCC and by Brent, I might add. I mean, it is embarrassing the lies they told them. So if they tell lies, that level of investigation, what lies do you think they're going to tell to an ordinary person? But the real tragedy is there's not enough pressure in society to remove this institutional malpractice, which is so well-funded and has such fantastic mission statements. But it is self-serving. Uh, it is brilliantly self-serving, I might add, but it's not doing what it's meant to be doing, which is the protection of children and society. And we can see parallels in other sectors, can't we? Just thinking about CQC doing ins inspections and you know, the inspection into, I think the 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 initial one into Edenfield had been a uh, psychiatric hospital, had been that it was satisfactory. And then, of course, there was a document tv documentary yeah. which exposes um how abusive it is and then now of course the cqc have well, put it in special measures but... well it's exactly the same thing with Harringay yeah. over baby p before that they were given glowing and suddenly they were deemed discovered to be the disasters they are now on a subject of hcpc who replaced the general social care council whose policy of dealing with complaints was to ignore them as was established by some government tribunal i might add or investigation whatever because I know I can't say anything that's inaccurate because I would be jumped on. There was a Kafka's officer called Susie Smith. This is a matter of public record. And she was asked to investigate in the case. And the father had been looking after this girl for six years because the mother had severe psychological uh, issues apparently and had fled the country. And the mother came back after six years and wanted to uh, have the child, that's my understanding. So she made an application to court and she's perfectly entitled to do. And the Kafka's officer observed the father playing with the child, and she decided she doesn't like the father because she's typical Kafka's. So she makes an allegation that he was inappropriately touching the child, but she's playing on the swing. In other words, mild sexual abuse allegations against him. He was arrested and all the rest. His name is Jonathan Coupland. But he's a tough, capable guy. He turned the tables on her, and she got arrested, and she was sacked by Kafka's. And her registration went before the HCPC. Now, listen to this for Kafka esque decision-making. They decided she should not be struck off because when she made the allegation against him, she was angry, but she was not angry with that man. You just worked that out. I have it in the book. It's a matter of public record. Now, the HCPC have now been replaced by somebody else. But this is just a question of the same personnel, different clown uniforms. That's all it is. Yeah. And the HCPC are regulating other, other professional groups. Correct. So this is the absurdity that you have. Yeah. 
It's a gravy train, I'm sorry to say. It is a gravy train. Within your book, alongside sexism, you identified three of the factors that you feel contribute to the injustice in your situation. Can you talk us through those? Well, sexism? Uh, you mean the four pillars, as I've called yes, it? Yes. Oh, yes. Sorry. Thank you. Thank you. Sorry. Yes. Uh, yeah, um, well, an outdated patriarchal judiciary, number one. Most case law, until about 15 years ago, was made by judges whose parents, they themselves had been in public school. They were raised by our peers. The fathers never changed the nappy. They were the upper middle class. They were in the forces, the services, they were abroad, because Britain had a large empire and a lot of skilled people abroad involved in it. So they have this absolute belief that only mothers can care, because that's all they've known in their experience. The upper middle class, that's all they knew. Then you have the professional anti-father agencies and how they have altered the system. I mean, legal aid is only available for mothers effectively, 97% of the time, post LASPO, that's legal aid. Think of it, to get legal aid, it comes under legal aid, sentence and punishment of offenders, which means that someone has to be an offender or someone is a victim. So in the family courts, it is rigged that only people who allege domestic abuse could receive legal aid. And all the gateway agencies, which are feminist orientated, totally, women's aid, refuge, what have you, they quickly got it sorted out that they were the providers and the constitutional practice, they will only help. So the accuser of the false allegation, which is 70% of the allegations to family courses, evidenced by Professor Tommy Mackay, which is in a British Psychiatric Journal edition of 2014, um, and my own experience is the same, I might add, based on thousands of cases over the years of helping people. Uh, the domestic violence bandwagon means that only females can get legal aid. The men will not get legal aid 97% of the time. The injunctions increased by 300% when that came in against fathers accused of um, abuse. But the, local, but the criminal courts in those areas were having the opposite figure that's going down. So the hardline feminists realizing that this was not, and I emphasize a distinction between hardline feminists and feminists for equality, which is completely different, which I entirely support feminism for equality, as it used to be one time. They quickly realized that they were losing the case here. So then they brought in coercive and controlling behavior, which is totally entirely subjective. So that added to the outdated patriotic judiciary, outdated to the vast government-funded uh, agencies at the gateway systems. But the biggest failure, in my opinion, is modern men. And I'm not popular for saying that, but I'm not worried about popularity. Never had it, so I'm not worried about losing it. They will not do anything about it by and large. They will, they say cancer, they don't know about it. And when it happens to them, they're then all shrieking that, how can this be done? This is all wrong. I need help, I need help. Hey, what did you do before it happened to you? In my case, I did nothing. Virtually everybody I know had done nothing. But after it happened to you, what are you then doing? Well, in my case, I'm doing my bit, I feel. I feel I should do more. And I'm not nearly successful enough, in my opinion. But it's extraordinary how I have become so much more successful than 99% of the fathers in this process. And considering there's about 45 to 48,000 applications per year to the family court, that's many hundreds of thousands of fathers who aren't doing much post this happening to them and they have a knowledge of it. So they, they are the factors that contribute to the current situation. Lack of forensic investigation by society, which needs to be pushed by fathers and grandmothers and the like, 
who are not being allowed to see their children for no good reason other than malevolence, outdated patriarchal judiciary, professional systems uh, heavily influenced by what I would call corrupt legal personnel. And I've had an ombudsman investigation into the Solicitor Regulatory Authority as well. So I have some history of knowing how the legal aid, but there's no legal aid in my case, I might add, the mother's a wealthy woman. Um, the, um, the legal aid bandwagon is so harvested by domestic violence agencies in cahoots with uh, solicitor firms through the back door who will go fishing to get an injunction. Then once they get the injunction, you see, then they have the legal aid ticket for the person making the accusation mm -hmm. and not for the person who's been falsely accused. So the average father coming into the family court believes there's a fight between him and the mother who should be looking after the children. And 90% percent of fathers don't want a residence with the children. They just want a good, meaningful contact with the children, which is what the law says, I might add, statute of parliament. But to quickly find themselves up against the domestic violence bandwagon, backed, trained, and promulgated by the government. And that is where most of them fail. Why do you think it's why do you think it's so hard to create change in this in this area? Because I mean you've been talking about this for a while and years. you've been successful in, in managing to shine some visibility onto failings. But you know, why why is it so hard to get change, do you think? A contradictory term I would use here is aggressive inertia. Society and particularly fathers do not want to be seen to be attacking women. This is how the defenders of this system present themselves. I mean, the mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, every few weeks he's coming on about toxic masculinity and he's going to protect all women and children, which in my opinion is just pure chauvinism on his part. Uh, it infantilizes them. So you have, you see, the huge amount of industry, journalists, media, what have you, who will aggressively pursue the toxic male, vulnerable female. We're going to protect the vulnerable female and children. Ignoring the fact, of course, that more children are killed by the mothers than the fathers, but they don't want to hear that. Because if you say that, they accuse you of being misogynist straight away. Now, I've been accused of so many things that accuse me of misogyny is completely irrelevant. Misandry is a word you virtually never hear. And the BBC is meant to have a position of, of balance. Yet every time the mainstream media has ever covered parental alienation or the family courts or anything like that, it's, it has an extraordinarily huge presentation. So you see, nobody wants to go up against this total avalanche. The comparisons I would draw with, if you look at history, how come at one stage in the North America, in the Southern states, there was actually more black people than there were white people, and yet there were slaves? Because this was the atmosphere, the culture, perception is reality. People would use the comparison of how come so many brave Jewish people Docilely went on the trains into the sanatorium, not the sanatorium, the crematoriums, which they at this stage was quite widespread knowledge. See, when you have a society and people afraid for themselves and a lack of support around, nobody wants to be the maverick, nobody wants to be the outsider, because you're just going to be crushed. Because we all know of the conspiracy theorists and what have you who come up with the crackpot theories, which are a gift to the opposition, I might add. So nobody wants to be seen with them. Then as regards this business, the people shouting about fathers should have rights. Fathers have no rights, but they don't understand that. They don't want to accept that. But technically the mother has no rights either. But implementation and practice is completely different. For example, section two 
Subsection 4 of the Children Act 1989 clearly states, for the widens of doubt, the father is no longer the legal guardian of his children, but neither is the mother. The state is. So nobody, I've known situations where mothers wanted to draw allegations against the father because they wanted the allegations to get him out. They wanted to divorce him, mm -hmm. but didn't want to divorce him from the children. What I call the decent mothers in the process. Uh, I'm not talking about the ones outside the family court. And they then quickly found that if they were to withdraw the allegations, social services would be ordered to do an investigation into their parents and not their children. So they're in the process. They are not going to go against that. Ignivorous Kamal in Haringey earlier. So you have this seek with extraordinary authority because the most damage you can do to a man, apart from capital punishment, as identified by former President of Family Division, Sir James Mumby, is uh, separation of him from his children when capital punishment no longer exists in society. But there's no outcry against this. And anyone, Neil Linden, for example, many years ago, 1970s, he wrote the book uh, No More Sex War. Quickly, he was blacklisted as a journalist. Dominic Rabb, about, oh, I don't know, what, 15 years ago, him and his lawyer wife had an expose in a couple of the mainstream publications about toxic, bigoted feminists and the like. He was quickly told, shut up if you want a career. He's never mentioned it since. Not Apart from now, there's a few MPs in the Red Wall areas, Ben Bradley, Lee Anderson, one or two more, who are beginning now to put their head above the parapet. But for example, Philip Davies, Member of Parliament for Shipley, Yorkshire, I think it is, yeah, it is Yorkshire, a few years ago, 2016, I think, at International Conference on Men's Issues, he used evidence from the House of Commons Library to refute the repeated allegation that women were treated more harshly in the courts, in the criminal courts than men, right? The entire Liberal Party wrote letter to the Prime Minister demanding that he be deselected. Labour, of course, Jess Phillips and all the rest were shrieking about this crude misogyny and all the rest. So what average MP is going to put his head above the parapet? I've never once heard one Labour politician demanding that children have better outcomes and be better outcomes for children post-abortion separation in the UK to match the European level. Not once. All I ever hear is toxic male, toxic male, toxic male. I think some of that is because some of these people, when they might have valid points to make, they've also got a history, perhaps, of of arguing cases of things that are much more controversial. So I'm just thinking about Philip Davies, for instance, who mm. argued against making upskirting a law, didn't he? Something like that, yes, yes. yes. He was involved um, in a few things, yeah. Yeah, so I, I think then it... I think people perhaps get themselves into a position where it's hard for people to listen to anything they've got to, got to Oh, there's an element of that, certainly. And he's that blunt, direct speak. Yes, I do remember the upskirt, and I hadn't followed that, but you have reminded me of it. Um, I mean, I, can't, I, I couldn't understand why they need to be separate legislation for upskirt, because to me, this is a invasion of a person's privacy, and I couldn't understand why it wasn't illegal the first day ever. It's just one of those things. The law always has to catch up with reality. But I think... In partial defense of Philip Davis, he knew, he knows quite a bit about these uh, gender vigilante organizations, as I call them. Some people call them feminist organizations. So he was using upskirting as an example of another vehicle of abuse by them. So you had this, you know, two opposites, can we say? Mm -hmm. So I agree, and yes, I agree that the message was sort of lost because of previous comments by him. 
But uh, Tim Loughton, for example, was Children's Minister a number of years ago, uh, a Conservative from the Community Force in 2010. And prior to 2010, the Conservative Party had made a lot of noise about improving the family court. And uh, Family Seed Fathers then put an awful lot of energy into that. And Tim Loughton was made Children's Minister and really made sounds about improving the situation. Uh, on Father's Day 2010, I was leading a Central London branch Family Seed Fathers the boat trip we used to do every annual Father's Day on the Thames, which cost us, after the small donations had come in, it cost our branch £1,665, which is a lot from a, a lot of poor, impoverished fathers contributing might have, uh, and their grandma, grandmothers and the like as well. And uh, I was handed a copy of the Telegraph. The headlines was David Cameron attacking feckless fathers on Father's Day. So I knew then that any pretense of improvement was gone under the massive avalanche of the uh, gender vigilante research and what have you. Tim Loughton, the new inspiring children's minister, let's say, was called into a meeting and was sacked as children's minister. Hmm? He had no previous record of saying anything too bad, unlike, uh, uh, you, know, you see? So the point very quickly is, you do not have set the narrative. There is one narrative on this issue. I uh, because I grew You're up kind in, of talking about council culture, aren't yes, you? Yes, absolutely. And the, and the idea that because I grew up in in Ireland, you see, in the sixties, when there was an extraordinary uh, Catholic uh, narrative, a theological, how would I say, total control. Nobody questioned that narrative until the self-destructed with his own self-imposed lunacy in the eighties. But nobody, I was rare as a Catholic a long time ago myself. But nobody questioned that narrative. You have the same here now with the orthodoxy of uh, toxic male and women must be protected from all men, irrespective of the evidence. So it seems a society never seems capable of getting towards real societal professionalism, that the agencies get too much control, they have too much budgets, they have too much control of the narrative, there's too many people then go on the bandwagon, so we all have seen the exist from one bandwagon to another bandwagon, in my naive opinion. So, Vincent, we're drawing uh, times drawing to a close, and I'm just thinking you referred to how stressful and pressurising the whole experience was when you were fighting for your own relationship with your own children. Mm -hmm. And I suppose the picture doesn't seem much less bleak now. How do, how do you yeah? How do you manage to keep yourself uh, energised and focused on? on raising these kind of um, arguments against the system. And what advice would you give to anyone else who finds themselves in this situation in terms of looking after their well-being? Well, you have to accept that number one, you're going to be smashed. And not every father wants to go through that because they may not come out the other side. Uh, and I was smashed, let's have no doubt about that. But um, you then have to go very deep into yourself. Or this is what I did anyway and go through the things you've done in life prior. You mustn't let the things you've done in life with your children trap you and be the massive cloud you cannot rise from under because of the incredible sense of loss of not seeing your children for a couple of months at a time on evidence you hadn't even seen. And it is an extraordinarily difficult thing to overcome that. And that is a major cause of male suicide and the increase in male suicide post last book uh, in 2013. So you have to dig very deep in yourself. You have to have a dictus belief in yourself. And I used to have a, a good competitive background for a couple of decades of motorbike racing before that squash marathon running and the like. So I had that, 
how would I say, desire to fight, to compete, even though I'd never been involved in any other no sports in my life. And then when I began to discover how corrupt Brent are, ironically, that gave me an incentive to fight. <laughs> I, I, I had a target. And the human mind, particularly, I think the male human mind is more target focused than the female human mind. I, I do, I'm not a woman, I, I cannot comment, but it's my belief that men like targets and women go for feelings and have a different way of looking at things. Uh, both men to complement the society, of course, as they should. But uh, once I had a target for my hate, shall we say, I realized that I have to control this because it will just evaporate me, it'll eviscerate me if I give into it. So I then, while lying in my blow-up bed in my garage, that fortunately I owned, so I couldn't be evicted from that because I was booted from the family home. Uh, I realized that I had to come up with a strategy and a tactic for dealing with these people. At this stage, I wasn't even seeing the children. I mean, talk about hope springs eternal. So I come up with the attackers from the castle an analogy. And I realized I'm small fry, and this is vast. So what I had to do was do apparently a frontal attack on the drawbridge. And they will send out soldiers or whatever to deal with me. And I must disappear and hide. I must not be caught. I must not be sacrificed. And from them coming out, I will get more material to use. So that's how I began to build up my, uh, my, my, my history of campaigning, by using what they were doing to go further. And after the initial resistance, I then began to get small bits of success. And I realized I could use these like Lego, which is familiar with building with the children. So that is how I coped. But an awful lot of men do not cope because they don't have the support I had. I didn't have a career, don't forget, you see. I had sufficient income coming in for family and friends that I didn't have to work. That is some huge saving because you have a job. You either lose a job or you totally get lost in the job to keep the job with that stress and trauma, which means you can't be campaigning and fighting. So I had many advantages that most men don't have. Uh, they didn't seem advantageous at the time, but the fact that I could go to my own room, uh, a garage, every night, I had been given a computer by a friend, I had been given a mobile phone, I mean, talk about learning from the early stages, but I had that support, unquestioning support, so I quickly realized, you see, I couldn't let these people down, even people, I, mean, I have 54 witness statements in court, for example, uh, even people who didn't like me, believe me, I'm not universally popular, were sickened of what has happened to the children, because you need the relation between the children and me. So how we can translate that into how everybody else can uh, do what I have done, you cannot, because they don't have that support, an awful lot of them, they don't have that network. So I, I realized after a while that I had some extraordinary advantages compared to many, one of them being I'm a former mechanic. I don't complicate things. What's wrong? What's it meant to be doing? How to fix it? I just apply that simple thinking. Mm -hmm. And I have found that that is the best thinking going. Because I didn't know, I wasn't educated enough to analyze. I was, um, I was um, blessed by ignorance. <laughs> and, and is your relationship, things, things are back on track. You've got a relationship with your children now. Well, they all took turns of not seeing me between six to nine years. And that's life. And I went, did my best in court to get the court orders enforced at, at what have you. And now I have a very good relationship for the past number of years. Well, only for the past year, really, with two of them, at the death of my younger brother, sadly, who they knew very well. And that's when two of them who hadn't seen me for between six and eight years turned up. But I had six years of shared parenting because of the court that I wouldn't have had otherwise. 
So I am appreciative of those six years, mm -hmm. I emphasize. But um, I'm also deeply appreciative of the help and support I've got from so many people, including, sadly, the man who's been completely destroyed, who was my intellectual guide and mentor in the beginning. I had access to some extraordinary people. And uh, to quote the man who's had a breakdown, he once said to me, Vincent, if a bogman like you can get an ombudsman's investigations, I have to get two. He never got one. I suppose the, the other thing that you're highlighting in terms of coping is the importance of accepting support and help from, oh, from other people. You know, you, oh. that's, that's come across in a couple of places and yeah. people aren't always so good at doing that, are they? But Or the family around them is, is using the opportunity to put the boot in because of personal dislikes and, and, and things like that. A lot of people... This has savage knock-on effects with relationships with their partners, friends, uh, family, for so many men, because they're so polarized. They keep obsessing about this. And after a while, the family members get sick of listening to them and their friends and their workmates. It's understandable. Yeah. So they end up losing those contacts, you see. And that then, of course, puts them even further more polarized. So it's it, it, it's a whirlpool that they cannot get out of, sadly, for far too many. And then you see what an awful lot of men do to survive is they don't go into this whirlpool. And they desperately try to get another woman and start family life again. And I've known some fathers have the whole process twice. I know one father's had it three times, three different Gosh. women. <laughs> and each one supported him in the previous situation. Gosh. I mean, madness. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for coming on and sharing your story today. Thank you both. It's been very interesting to hear, but you know, quite hard to hear how hard it can be. It's sickening how hard it is. Thanks but thank so you. Much indeed. Thank Thanks you for amazing. illuminating it. People like you are pivotal in illuminating this, getting professional attention onto it, and being part of the bulwark against warmer practice. Thank you very much. <laughs>